I'm sure uh, a lot of recent law grads or people who are finishing up their degrees now may have a similar experience. I actually woke up one morning at the beginning of my final year and realized, bugger, I have not applied for any clerkships. I started to have this existential crisis of I'm going to be unemployed. I'm not going to have a job. You know, all of this has gone to waste. And I actually reached out to the careers counsellor. She actually steered me down the path of you don't necessarily need to go to a firm and you don't necessarily need to go to a top tier firm to make it or have a valuable career. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott. Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Chad Burnell. Chad can sum up his legal career as encompassing combat ships and combat sports. Chad and I first met at law school, and though our paths have led us down different areas of the law, we both find ourselves, 10 years later, enjoying our careers in the in-house space. Chad now works as a lawyer at the Office of Sport for the New South Wales State Government. Chad reached out to me on LinkedIn and offered himself as a guest on this podcast. He pitched it as someone who could bring the unique perspective of a public sector in-house lawyer as well as an in-house lawyer in the sports law space. During our conversation, Chad generously explains both, and I, for one, now know much more about these areas of practice. Enjoy this episode with Chad Burnell, and please feel free to recommend it to anyone in your network who may also be interested. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chad, all the way from Sydney. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mel. And I wanted to say again, thank you for reaching out. We went to university together, but we haven't necessarily stayed in touch. You saw I was doing this fun little podcast project and you reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, I've got a story to tell. Let's do it. And I just love that. So thank you for taking the initiative. And you most certainly do have a story to tell. And I'm so excited to have you here to talk about parts of in-house practice and also parts of being a lawyer in public practice as well that we don't always hear. So let's get cracking. I'm going to start off as I always do, just for fun. If you had a limitless credit card, but could only spend it in one shop, what shop would that be and why? This one was actually a really tough one. Do I be fun? Do I be serious? But you know, in the in the COVID times we're living, I'm actually going to give a shout out to a local business. And it's my local cafe here in Sydney that I go to in Auburn. It's called Morning Owl. You know, the vibe and the, and the band is good. Mm-hmm. The food's great. But most importantly, the coffee's outstanding. So if you're wanting a place uh, in Sydney to go and have an awesome brunch and great coffee, uh, head to Morning Owl in Auburn and uh, they will look after you. Great plug and super important to look out for local businesses where we can. You take that unlimited credit card, you buy them out of their beans, they'll be happy, you'll be happy. And I'm sure that you would agree, Mel, that uh, as as a lawyer, coffee is like the sixth food group. A hundred percent. Yeah, most certainly for me as well. Couldn't agree more, actually. So as I said, we met at university. Could you tell me a little bit about your time at, at law school and what you experienced? 
So I did a combined law and international business degree. And really, I think at that point in time, I had my, I guess, my mind set on this, you know, this law and commerce type degree and role mm -hmm. in terms of where I wanted to go career-wise. And that sort of followed me through the subjects I'd I chose and, and studied. And what I loved about the international business degree, it, it actually forced me to go on an exchange. Oh, um, nice. So it actually gave me the, the door to, I guess, fulfill a childhood dream, which was to actually study law at Duke University, which is in North Carolina in the US and one of the, probably one of the top 10 law schools in the country there. So to have a semester there where you know, the teaching there was just fantastic and amazing and having the ability to, I guess, have free reign in terms of subject matter. So, you know, I did subjects like First Amendment, which as an Australian lawyer, you're never going to do here, but it was a free credit. So why not get that, I guess, comparative experience? And let me tell you, First Amendment law is an absolute minefield and it makes no common sense to me whatsoever. So they have an entire subject devoted to one amendment to the constitution. Yep, that's correct. What a great opportunity. It so was. when you, you came back to Bond from Duke, when did you start thinking about what would be next for you after law school? I'm sure uh, a lot of recent law grads or people who are finishing up their degrees now may have a similar experience. I actually woke up one morning at the beginning of my final year and realized, bugger, I have not applied for any clerkships. And I started to have this existential crisis of, I'm gonna be unemployed, I'm not gonna have a job. You know, all of this has <laughs> gone to waste. And I actually reached out to the careers counselor at Bond University, Kirsty Mitchell, who- I remember Kirsty. I have to give her a shout out. She is amazing and phenomenal. What she's done over the past but I think 12, 13 years since I graduated is amazing. But she actually steered me down the path of, you know, you don't necessarily need to go to a firm mm. and you don't necessarily need to go to a top tier firm to, to make it or have a valuable career. And she actually turned me, my mind to exploring in-house careers, but also not just in private, like in the private sector, but in the government sector. I think that's so important to to make a mention of the the resources available to students on campus can actually be something that you might not be aware of. But if you do have a careers development centre or officer or, or someone who's there to give that support, like go and see them. Like they, I had the same experience as you with, um, it was Caroline actually who hooked me up with my first gig and like they just couldn't have been more professional and also giving, I found a better breadth of options. I'm sure you found the same, but the, the big law firms, just six names advertising to law students through events uh, is one thing, but you don't necessarily hear about in-house or public sector work or not-for-profit work when you're in law school. It doesn't seem to be something, at least for us, that was as visible. So it's uh, well worth mentioning that there are great people in universities that you can reach out to who might set you up with just a different way of thinking. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you go and see them, the worst that's going to happen is that you're going to leave with information. Like you're not going to get, like you may not get an answer, but you have the information to then go and do some more research and more thinking. And I think what's important is that, you know, if you miss out on applying for clerkships or you don't get a clerkship, that's 
you know, that's not the end of the road. Not at all. And I know that when we move from your life at university to your life as a lawyer, there's kind of one word that sums it up, and that is sport. Sport, sport, sport. I actually like to describe it. I can actually really sum up my career as something from from combat ships to combat sports. Okay. You've got to explain the combat ships part for me. <laughs> I will, I will. So to, you know, to unpack it a bit, when I finished a bond, I actually took up a position uh, in the graduate program with the Defence Material Organisation, uh, which at the time, because it, it no longer exists, but that was the, I guess, the separate and independent arm of the Commonwealth Department of Defence that, that dealt with the major equipment procurement. So I'm talking about naval frigates, helicopters, air tankers, missiles and explosive ordnance, submarines, fighter jets, etc. So huge money. Massive money. You know, what what was really mind boggling to start with was, you know, within their scheme of procurements, a minor procurement was valued up to fifty million dollars. Oh, my goodness. That gives me a real understanding of the thresholds there and and no pressure. Hey. Not at all. And one of the highlights before I left, I was actually posted to a project where I was, you know, in effect, the lead internal lawyer for a project that through whole of life was $25 billion. How do you even begin to deal with that kind of number did you feel a real pressure as a a junior lawyer handling that kind of value so the value like the way that the the demo was set up was that you know as the lawyer or the or the legal team there you know you really are i want to say you're more black letter law in terms of you're dealing with the contracts you're dealing with how they're structured the drafting the negotiations there's a whole nother project team that are filled with the commercial advisors, right. the financial advisors, the engineers and the techies. So, you know, you're part of that team. Now, you can't really give proper advice on the project unless you know what exactly you're dealing with. So, you know, rather than the dollar figure being, I guess, the thing that's overwhelming, it's, you know, it's getting your hand, your head around, you know, what is this solution that we are purchasing and acquiring and how are we going to do that from an acquisition perspective, but then whole of life maintenance and sustainment. And then, you know, that brings in things like, you know, from a commercial legal perspective, liquidated damages, limitation of liability, intellectual property, you know, because we're talking about, you know, highly sophisticated systems with underlying IP that's either currently owned by the contractor or that'll be developed specifically for us or that will be developed for us, but then they can then use for other projects for other international customers. Mm, that's really cool. It really it, it, it really was a an eye-opening experience as a first gig out of uni because you're then not only, you know, contributing to the national defence sector but then the deals that you are working on are actually quite big mm. in terms of value. And when I started, they, you know, they kept rolling out this stat that if the DMO was listed on the ASX, it would be within the top 10. Yeah, wow, huge. So, you know, the deals were complex, they were big, but 
you know, you had people who were experienced and also committed and passionate about what they were doing. And that always helps. And like you said, working as part of a team and not having to shoulder the burden of the deal yourself by any stretch, that would have made a huge difference, I'm sure. So we move from combat ships to combat sports. How did you make that transition? After about five years or so at at Demo, I started to get, you know, a little bit of itchy feet, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of, you know, diminishing returns in terms of learning. So, Mm. you know, have I learnt all that I can right now in this role? Mm. You know, and do I need a different experience? And at that point in time, fortuitously, I was able to transfer through to the, now this is a mouthful, the Department of Regional Australia Local Government Arts and Sport. Wow, what a portfolio. It, it was it was actually really diverse, but the thing that drew me to the role was, as you've highlighted, the sport portfolio. And, you know, I was actually only there for seven months. And the reason for that is that I joined at the beginning of 2013, and then probably about five months in, a maternity leave backfill position came up at the Australian Sports Commission, which is a separate legal entity to the Commonwealth, but it actually sits under the sport portfolio. So at the time, they sat under us. What does a sports commission do? So I break it down in terms of like community participation policy, infrastructure, but also high performance. So every Everyone's heard of the Australian Institute of Sport. We mm-hmm. use the two terms really interchangeably, but the AIS is part of the Australian Sports Commission, which is now called Sport Australia. So the Sports Commission of Sport, sport Australia really is the peak national body for sport policy. They do some amazing work on the community sports sides. Then there's, you know, I would like to call it all the cool stuff on the AIS side, so the high performance. So we're, we're talking about, you know, what are the things that we can do to get that 1% better performance out of our athletes? Is it in their nutrition? Is it in their sleep? Is it in their training? Is it in their mindset, their mental health? And so and so wow. there's a whole high, high performance system around athletes that is led by the AIS and then supported by all the state institutes uh, and academies of sport. If we take a moment just to take stock, Legal 101, what is sports law? So... You know, unlike, say, contract law, sports law is not a single topic. It's actually an umbrella term. And really, sports law is how the law applies to the business management operation and running of professional and amateur sport. So anything from, say, elite high performance, i.e. Olympics and NRL and AFL, right down to fourth grade suburban footy on a Sunday arvo. There are aspects of sports law that that touch on that. Now, there are going to be aspects of sports law that are unique to sports law. So I'm talking like anti-doping, match fixing, integrity matters. But when you think about it, sports law covers off employment law because athletes need, need to be paid. Torts, competition law, it really is an umbrella term of how the law applies to, let's say, the business of sport. Got it. And I guess that extends to things like infrastructure with stadiums and insurance and with teams and crowds, like, you know, you ply your mind to it. There's actually a lot that falls under that there umbrella, There is a isn't lot. It? it is. And it's, it's growing, I would say, year by year. 
thank you for clarifying that because I haven't got any experience in sports law, but I think we probably have more commonalities than I would have first thought in terms of contract, insurance, employment. Uh, I'm sure you even get the odd privacy issue that pops up from time to time. That seems to touch us all. If I skip forward a little to your current role, still in sport, that you know that you are sticking to your guns on that one. You are working as the legal officer at the Office of Sport for the New South Wales government. Is that right? So the Office of Sport is a department of the New South Wales government, which is the agency responsible for sport and active recreation. Now, you know, our mission, vision, goal, whatever you want to call it, you know, we're talking about increasing levels of physical activity by providing policies, programs and infrastructure that's necessary to enable higher rates of participation. Part of our remit is that we have a little it's easier to describe it as a side organisation uh, that's called Venues New South Wales, which actually manage and operate, uh, I, I want to say, three or four stadia and two entertainment centres within New South Wales. So if you're thinking ANZ Stadium or Stadium Australia, Bankwest Stadium, those types of venues, you know, as you just t- touched on, you know, ticketing is a big one, particularly for Venues New South Wales. So, you know, with the whole... COVID-19, I've had to give advice Mm. about, well, okay, what additional ticketing terms can we put into your condition of entry in relation to COVID and physical distancing? Gosh, of course. I have no doubt the current COVID-19 situation has affected your industry phenomenally. You've had to get up to speed pretty quickly with what it all means for us. When And there's really no end in sight from what I can no. tell. So if I was to ask you what a typical day <laughs> in your legal life looks like, I'm sure what you would answer today is probably a little different to six months ago. Yeah. But generally, it sounds like you've got a little bit of everything on your plate. A typical week might include providing advice to our regulation unit about powers and offences under the Combat Sports Act or the Motor Vehicle Sports Public Safety Act, which are the two acts that we administer. There's always the dispute resolution and litigation aspect to uh, to the role, not only on a commercial sense, but also because of the acts that we administer, administrative law. Challenging decisions that are made or challenging conditions that are placed on permits when a particular party doesn't like the conditions being imposed. Then there's the general contract advice, regulatory advice, and then like all that project and commercial advice, which really, you know, it's not traditional legal work. The big unknown in what my week is or what my day is, and this is something particular to a government lawyer, is whatever comes from the minister's office or parliament. I love it. <laughs> right, so sport's been a pretty big part of your life and, and now as as your career, I think that's so fantastic and a great example of passion intertwining with yeah. work. Is, th- is that something that motivates you in your career choices? It does. And, you know, when I was working at, at DMO, I always knew I wanted to do a master's, but I didn't know what in. I just thought, okay, I'll just sit back and wait, sit back and wait and spent the seven months at Draugus, was then able to secure that maternity leave backfill at the Sports Commission. It was a 12-month contract turned into a six-year gig, you know, because I sort of, you know, I was a bit agile in that, you know, the legal position, that role finished after 15 months, but then I actually pivoted and joined the procurement team. 
Okay, so away from the legal, the strictly legal. Away from the legal, but staying within the sports sector because I lent on all my procurement experience from DMO. So, you know, it was a, you know, a decision for me to either pivot and remain at the Sports Commission or go back to Draugus, which actually had essentially been disbanded because in 2013 we had the election of the uh, the Abbott government, which, you know, and after each election, the Prime Minister who is who was elected publishes their, what are known as administrative arrangement orders which basically say which policy settings sit under which portfolio. And the department that I was in, Regional Australia Local Government Arts and Sport, actually got disbanded. So, right. you know, I had a choice to either pivot and stay at the Sports Commission or go back to my substantive role that would have been sitting within the Department of Infrastructure and Transport. That's where I made the decision to go, no, I need to pivot, do procurement, for a few years because I'll still be connected. You know, I'm still at the Sports Commission. I'm still in that sector. And given that, you know, corporate services there was actually quite lean in terms of, you know, the legal team, there was two, the procurement team was two. So, you know, there was always going to be some overlap anyway, which which mm. I benefit from. So, of course. you know, once I started at the commission, so at the Sports Commission, that's when I really knew that, sports was the sector that I wanted to be involved with and, you know, and it to be my niche. And so from there, I did a single unit at UNSW on on anti-doping. And then after doing that course, I actually decided, yep, I want to do my master's in sports law. And so I was grateful that the Sports Commission and my manager at the time was, you know, very supportive of it, noting that you know, it was not procurement related, but there was context in terms of they knew where my career journey was going. So, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, to speak to your managers about career development opportunities that may not wholly align with what your role mm. is currently, mm -hmm. but which actually benefit you in your career path and actually benefit the organisation. Were you studying and working at the same time? Yeah, and that's fun. Wow. That's absolutely <laughs> fun. So I actually want to give, I'm going to give a shout out to the Melbourne Uni Sports Law Program because that's who I did my master's with. It is one of the preeminent bodies in the world that deal with sports law and their sports law program is is world renowned. But what was what was great about it was that when you're working and studying, you've got to start looking at the practicalities of how the course is delivered. And what was great was that each course was, was essentially one week of face-to-face. -face. So selling it to your boss, it's like, hey, I'm away from the office for one week, but you know, I'll log on at night. It's not like I have to, you know, every Tuesday I'm going from 12 till six and things like that. Do you think they've designed it with professionals in mind? Absolutely because we had participants from, so you know, it was in Melbourne, but at the time I was living in Canberra. And, and you would just fly down exactly, for each course. Exactly. Okay. So having it as like a week block really allowed people from all over Australia, some from New Zealand came, came and joined us. So it actually gave the ability for the working professional to, you know, to make it work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So full-time, full-time work and part-time study, uh, Thumbs up is amazing. <laughs>
but a means to an end. And I have no doubt you enjoyed the content along the way and learned a lot. I was recently asked by a junior lawyer about studying a master's degree and particularly whether it was necessary for in-house roles. And my thoughts were not not necessarily no, but if you do have a real interest or a real niche or you want to deep dive into an area exactly like what you've done, then there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't you know, try and do that, especially if you love to study and learn. Like it's not something that comes naturally to everyone, but there's something to be said for what you've done, which is waiting taking your time, establishing that career, seeing a theme and a passion emerge, and then applying yourself to some post, some postgraduate studies. So I think that's, that's a great, a great way to do it. And I think also the other thing to think about is rather than it's just benefiting you as the individual, it benefits your employer because you're going to come away with these knowledge and skills, which, you know, if we're talking practical benefits, it may mean that as an in-house lawyer, you don't need to brief out so much work because you now understand the context. So you're saving on your legal fees, but also then you become the trusted expert within the organization. And I think that is the real challenge for an in-house lawyer is to build that rapport to be the trusted expert and advisor. And you can sell it that way, can't you, to your employer? You're like, hey, you know, if it's coming down to dollars and cents, you guys are going to get the benefit of this as well because we can save Mm. if we've got the expertise in-house. At the time, at the Sports Commission, no one had done, or the legal, you know, the legal team or two, neither of them had done the Masters in Sports Law. Now, by me doing it, I brought back to the organisation this whole wealth of knowledge, which then applied across the work that we did. You've mentioned so many words that I am just not as intimately familiar with throughout our our chat today. Office, commission, policy, act, minister, parliament. You know, this is public sector life. And I'm so intrigued to hear from you what your experience has been generally and, and also what myth you would debunk about working in the public sector. I think there's two. There were two key ones. And like the first one is the whole clock on at nine, clock off at five type of mentality and work ethic. It, you know, it's, it's just not true. A government department, like any other business, has outputs, it has customers, it has stakeholders, it has policies and programs that it wants to get out there. You've got deadlines like exactly. anybody. Exactly. And some of our deadlines are imposed by statute and legislation, some are imposed by the minister. And you just have to grin and bear it and deal with it. I think that's the the first, and I don't think many people really think that anymore, to be honest. You will work as hard as a lawyer working in-house, private, or in in a firm. You know, there are just peaks and troughs. I think that's the first one. The second one is government is too red tape and rigid. Right, yeah, I would definitely have thought that, that that might be your experience. There are some things that we have to do because the legislation says we have to. We can't change that. Only Parliament can change that. And, you know, we go through routines where we try and update legislation and try and streamline things. I'll put my hand up. I'm not one for red tape. But some things just need to be there because, A, that's what the legislation says, or B, it's due diligence. and And we need to do that. But you're always looking for solutions. It's a, okay, if you understand... And here's a good sport a sport analogy for you. If you understand the law, you're understanding the playing field. And 
You then go, okay, what am I permitted to do within the playing field? Because if you know your boundaries, you can then find a solution within it. So being an in-house lawyer, rather than, you know, when business units come to you and you go, no, you can't do that. It's more, okay, you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z, but you can do it this way or you can do it that way. Does that align with your strategy or direction or timelines or whatever? It's about steering the business to finding solutions within the framework you have. And that framework for us is actually mostly set in stone because it is underpinned by legislation. And it's that that shift of giving the advice from saying no to saying, well, yes, you can if you also do X, Y, and Z. And it's such a a simple shift, but my goodness, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Rather than saying flat out no, but actually tell me what you're trying to achieve and maybe we can find another way. Yeah, like you've got to be... You've really got to be the value add. Don't get me wrong. There are times where you need to and should say no. But there, mm. you know, the vast majority of, of times it's, okay, how can I help you get what, what you need to achieve? That's so fantastic. And, and doing it, as you say, without as, uh, with as little red tape as possible within the rules of the playing field that you're on, which is set by the powers that be beyond beyond your control. Thank you for sharing quite honestly and, and hitting some of those myths because I think you've you've really nailed some of the, the common ones that you might think of. So I'll um you know start to wrap up a little because we're coming on time and I'm so grateful for you coming and spending a Saturday morning with me. But I, I would love to know what the best piece of career advice is that you've ever received. Um so it would be something that Kirsty Mitchell said to me. Good old Kirsty. She's great. And you know you know, her simple advice, you know, take the opportunities. And I took the opportunity with the backfill at the Sports Commission. I then took the opportunity to apply for this role in Sydney at the New South Wales Office of Sport, you know, and that's to change, to change employers, but to also change cities in your mid-30s. You know, it's not a light decision to make, but really... You know, I can definitely say hand on heart, it was the right decision for me because the opportunity was there for me to, I'm now getting key regulatory experience, more hands-on that I wasn't getting per se at the Sports Commission because that's then building my my skill set. It's taking those op- opportunities to enhance or develop your skill set in, in areas that are currently lacking or can do with improvement. That's fantastic advice. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Chad. You've been an amazing guest and I'm just so glad that we've reconnected and I've had a chance to hear what you've been doing since uni. It's been awesome. All the very best for the rest of your career. No doubt we'll stay in touch. No doubt we will, Mel. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or Instagram. Find me at The In-House Lawyer.